Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, everybody. This is Lenny Goldberg, and I'm going to drop a couple of truth bombs today for you. You know, to do the show, you have to read a lot of uh, news on the Internet, radio, wherever you can, more than I really want to. And it's not easy because, you know, 90% of it is strongly slanted to the left. It's kind of frustrating. And in Israel, when you say extreme left, that also means extremely anti-Jewish. That's how extreme left expresses itself in Israel. We're talking about anti-traditional Jewish values. Every word that they print is something abhorrent to Judaism. And I asked the question last time, what drives these journalists to the extreme left lane? And not just in Israel, of course. Obviously, it's the LA Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN, all of them. Why are they all radical leftist nuts? And it's not just journalists. It's any type of artist, the musicians, the Hollywood actor or actress. Why is everybody in Hollywood so darn liberal? And what about academia? What drives all the professors to right-wing lunacy and the theater? Well, when it comes to Israel, especially the theater, there is no end to the list of masochistic and self-hating plays and movies that are put out. So the question is, again, what drives these artist types? And this is something universal from all over the world. What drives them to hatred of state? What drives them to anarchy that attacks all that is normal and sane and traditional and in the case of Israel, what obsesses them to hate Judaism so much? Well, Rabbi Meir Kahana wrote a book back in the 80s, which was called Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews. It's a great title. It's a great book. And I think in this book, Rabbi Kahana really hits the nail on the head. He's got a chapter called Artists, Intellectuals, and Imbeciles. And he raises the question that we just raised. What's the makeup of these artist types that make them so anti-establishment, so anti-state? so anti-traditional values. And he says like this, the answer, of course, lies in the very nature of that person who is an artist. Almost by definition, the artist is an individual who is driven by an overwhelming sense of self, one who is possessed by an ego that not only impels him to produce works of greatness and beauty, but which grows in direct relationship to his success. A certain kind of person is moved to become a teacher or accountant or physician and a certain kind of person is driven to art, whether it be painting or music or the entertainment world. The artist, in the broadest terms, is a person with an all-consuming ego that finds himself needing the approval and adulation of the crowd, which he secretly despises as being inferior to him in talent and in intelligence. And because of his ego, he cannot abide any tethering of his desires. He demands absolute freedom to do that which he wishes. In the name of his art, the state, by its very nature, is an authoritative coercive body that demands respect and obedience from the individual. It's the natural enemy of the artist, and especially when, deep in his subconscious, is the gnawing knowledge that the businessman and the politician and the military person, they are people of decisive action and decision in the real world, a thing that he shrinks from. For it is the very need to escape from reality that drives the artist into his own world. That is why the artist will heap calumny and contempt upon precisely those people who live in the real world 
who must and do make the difficult decisions that the artists could never make. He hates them for their strength. He hates them for their authority. He hates them for being that which he would like to be, but cannot achieve because of a weakness that is cloaked by a narcissism that destroys. And of course, the ultimate enemy for the Jewish artist is Judaism that demands from each individual the acceptance of the oak of heaven. Freedom? Judaism defines freedom in a way that no artist can accept. The only freedom recognized by Judaism is that which is within the bounds, the framework of halacha, of Jewish law. The Jewish ego must be harnessed by the yoke of heaven. Art? Of course, but only within the limitations of goodness and halacha and the beauty of yefet can dwell only in the tents of Shem. For the artist, that is impermissible. It goes against the very soul that is consumed by self, by ego, by I. That is why Judaism and the state are his sworn enemies. That is why authority of any kind cannot dwell within his camp. And that is why he is driven by self-destruction to the desire to destroy all others along with himself. For the one who is obsessed by ego can never be satisfied, can never find happiness. His is the path of eternal damnation in this world. And since he does not believe in another one, his ultimate yearning is to put an end to his agony. In the meantime, we all suffer because of him. So that's Rabbi Meir Kahana summing it up for us. What makes the artist the way he is? And now we can maybe understand why Hollyweird, why writers and theaters are all obsessed with knocking the establishment, authority. And maybe next time we'll bring the rabbi's book, Orion, The Jewish Idea, where he also explains the arrogance of the artist and what that stems from. That's a more Torah perspective on it. We'll bring that for you next time. So even before I go into the news, we want to know where they're coming from, from the depths of their soul, why they write the way they do, why they spin things the way they do. I want to open with a story that dominated the headlines all week long. And what they were talking about on the radio nonstop was that Haver Knesset Itma Ben-Gvir went up to the Temple Mount. And all week, the radio shows were interviewing other MKs and all the talking heads from all the political spectrums to get their reaction, it made international headlines that Itamar Ben-Gvir ascended to the Temple Mount. So first of all, just a little background. The Temple Mount, that's where the temple stood, the Jewish temple. That's why it's not called the Mosque Mount. It's called the Temple Mount. Because way before there was a mosque up there, there was Solomon's Temple, and it stood there for over 400 years. And after that, the second temple stood. And only way, way after that did the Muslims conquered the country from the Christians and they built their mosque and they purposely built it on the place of the temple. Now in 1967, with the Israeli victory in the Six Day War, we liberated Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the famous proclamation by Moti Gore, Harabayat Biadenu, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Unfortunately, the Israeli government chose not to take control of the Mount and they let the Arab Waqf be in charge and the Temple Mount has become off limits to the Jew. And when they do go up, they're at the mercy of the Arab authorities there. And so the Temple Mount, our Temple Mount, when a Jew goes up to the Temple Mount, the whole world just goes crazy. Now, just to show how bad the situation is, if you're a tourist and you're not interested in the Temple Mount for religious reasons, you just want to check it out like you're checking out any other holy site in Jerusalem, you can go up, but if you're a Jew who holds it holy, who might bring a prayer book up there, who might try to pray over there, you will get arrested. So the holiest site in Judaism we're not allowed to pray there. And if you do, you'll find the police billy club hitting you on the head or you'll be dragged to the nearest jail. Now think about this. Every time a Jew prays, wherever he is in the world, he points his body 
towards Jerusalem. No matter where he is around the globe, he prays towards Jerusalem. And if he's in Jerusalem itself, then he points his body towards Harabayat, towards the Temple Mount. So every Jew all over the world, when he prays three times a day, he's turning his body towards the Temple Mount because that's the holiest place there is. Okay, now if you check all over the world, there isn't a place on this globe where a Jew is actually forbidden to pray. It doesn't matter if it's the most oppressive regime. There's no law in any place or country forbidding a Jew to pray. He can pray anywhere in the world. And of course, when he does pray, he again, he turns towards the Temple Mount. But the one place in the entire world where there is a law against praying, guess where? The Temple Mount. How's that for irony? Welcome to Chelm. So again, a Jew goes up to the Temple Mount and the world goes nuts. It makes international headlines. And God willing, the Temple Mount really will be in our hands because the only thing preventing us today from taking that step, it's us. It's our decision. It's not like we're under Turk rule or British rule where we have no choice. This is our decision. It's one decision by us to take back the mountain. Unfortunately, most Jews only know about the Kotel. Well, if there's any sanctity to the Kotel, it draws that holiness from the Temple Mount. And because all we ever knew was the Kotel, and we were educated only only on the Kotel and not on the Temple Mount, when the IDF forces rolled onto the Temple Mount during that six-day war in 1967, they didn't even know what to do when they got up there. They weren't educated on the Temple Mount. They knew about the Kotel. So what did they do? They went down from the mountain to the Kotel because that's what they knew. So the lesson is here, you have to aim high, aim for the mountains, aim for the mount. When you educate the next generation, you aim for the redemption, for the temple, for vengeance against our enemies. Because if you don't aim for it, then when those things come around to you, when Hashem delivers it into your hands, you'll know what to do with it and you won't throw it away like we threw away the temple mount. You'll embrace it when it comes to you because you were mentally prepared for it. The next story I want to cover is really important because it reflects the tremendous amount of anti-Semitism that's so prevalent now in the world and its viciousness and openness has never been so obvious, whether it comes in black or white. And here's a story from the Washington Post on January 5th. A family finds swastikas in the lawn as anti-Semitism surges. And they show a picture here of a Jewish woman, Stephanie Lyons, at her home in Stoneham, Massachusetts. Her younger child found swastikas on their front lawn. And besides swastikas littering the lawn, it said in menacing scribbles, Jew bitch, Jesus hater, go to hell, Jew bitch. Besides the swastikas, that was also written next to their house. So it says here that the torrent of hate speech sweeping internet talk shows and social media is eroding the sense of safety for Jewish people across the United States. Remember, this is an article from the Washington Post. You can't get more mainstream than that. And it continues, as celebrities like Yee, formerly known as Kane West and Kyle Irving, have promoted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories to their millions of fans, American Jews have faced harassment, vandalism, and violence. And then the article gives a slew of examples of anti-Semitic acts that have been perpetrated on the Jewish communities all over the United States. And you always have to wonder, like, what are the Jews waiting for? Why didn't they get out of there? It used to be that if the Jews of the exile were warned that it could happen here, they'd look at you like you're crazy. What are you talking about? This is not Nazi Germany here. This is America. That's what they used to say. But today, if you say it can happen, the Jew understands that. He's not saying, no, you're crazy. It can't happen here. He darn knows well it can happen. So why doesn't he get out? So I want to take us to our Parsha, the portion of the week that we read, because everything's in the Torah. 
That's our blueprint for everything. And in Parshat Vayigash, the Jews come to Egypt. Their brother Yosef brings them in, makes great accommodations for them so they'll have it nice. Puts them up in Eretz Goshen, that's part of Egypt, so the Jews can have their nice little ghetto, so they can isolate themselves, like Jews do everywhere they go. They find their little Eretz Goshen, and their mikvahs, and their rabbis, and their congregations, and their communities. So they're set up over there. So they're hanging out in Eretz Goshen. They had to leave Israel through no fault of their own. There was a tremendous famine there. And luckily for them, the brother that they threw in a pit is now the king of Egypt, and he's taking care of him. Now, when Jacob and his family left the land of Israel for Egypt, it was never meant to be that their new home is in Egypt. This was a temporary diversion, because obviously the place for the Jewish people is in the land of Israel. But again, they had no choice. As it says in the Haggadah of Pesach, Anus al-Pir he was forced to leave the land of Israel, Jacob, and him and his family arrive in Egypt, and that's where they're going to be for a while. So like we said, in our Torah portion, Pasha Vayigash, the Jews are now in Egypt. They're getting set up by Yosef. And then it says in the very last verse of the Pasha, and I'll read it in Hebrew and then translate. Vayeshev Yisrael Beretz Mitzrayim Beretz Goshen. And the Jewish nation of Israel lived in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, in the Goshen district. Now listen to this. Vayechazubah, which means, and they grasped onto it. And they increased rapidly. So that's the key word, Vayechazubah. They seized it. They grasped the land of Goshen. They took possession of it. They loved it. All that is in the word Vayechazubah. And they were fruitful and they multiplied exceedingly. So the brilliant commentator, the Kliyayakar, picks up on that word that the children of Israel, Vayechazubah, they seized onto the land. They took possession of it, of Eretz Goshen. We know, of course, in a few generations that they are going to be enslaved. So the Kliyayakar says the following. This whole verse where it says that the Jewish people took possession of it, were fruitful and multiplied exceedingly. This whole verse levels an accusation against the children of Israel. For God decreed, your descendants will be foreigners. That is, back in Genesis 15, verse 13, God said to Abraham that you're going to be foreigners, you're going to be strangers in another land. But here, the children of Israel, they wish to be toshavim. They want to be permanent residents. And it was supposed to be that they're supposed to be just sojourners there. It was supposed to be something temporary. Thus the verse, which says they seized onto the land and took possession of it, it blames them for this residence, for holding onto the land, which they sought possession of a land that's not theirs. Does that not sound like the prototypical Jew in the exile who thinks Eretz Goshen is his home and it's really not? He's ochez, the land. He grasps onto it, he seizes it and makes it his own. So for a while, yeah, it works out. One generation another generation, but eventually it's going to explode or it's going to implode like every exile ever did. And I just want to finish the Kliyayakar here, he says, and so completely did they settle in that they did not wish to leave Egypt and God had to take them out with a strong hand and those who still did not wish to leave died in the three days of intense darkness. So the Jews were so entrenched in Egypt that even after Hashem sent those plagues upon Egypt and eventually the Jews were liberated from Egypt and left Egypt, we know that only Chomish left, only a fifth left Egypt and the other four fifths stayed in Egypt perishing in the plague of darkness. And the Kliyayakar is saying, here you can already see it. You can already see here that these are people who forgot where their real home is. They think it's the land of Goshen in Egypt. They got so used to it. They got so comfortable. They forgot that their ultimate destiny is to be in the land of Israel. What's interesting is that in the very next Pasha, the very next verses, Pasha Vayichi, that we read the Shabbat, Jacob the patriarch realizes this and he's trying to fix it. 
So what does he say to Joseph? The very first thing he says to him, do me a kindness, place your hand under my thigh, that is swear to me, and do not bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, bury me in the grave of my forefathers. In other words, send me to the land of Israel real fast. This isn't my place. That's the first thing he tells Yosef. He's trying to give him chinuch. He's trying to educate him. Because if anybody got used to Egypt, it's Yosef. He's been there a while, longer than all the other brothers, and he's the most successful and the most entrenched there. It's natural that he starts to see it as his home. And again, at the beginning of the portion Vayichi, Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty once appeared to me in the land of Canaan. He blessed me and said, I will make you fruitful and numerous and have you give rise to an assembly of nations. I will give this land to you and your descendants as their property forever. Again, Yaakov stressing that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people. That's where they're supposed to be. He's trying to get that through to Joseph, his favorite son, because he knows that his son Yosef, out of all his sons, has gotten used to Egypt. And just to show that, Joseph had two sons. One was Ephraim, one was Menashe. And he named his firstborn Menashe. What does Menashe mean in English? God has made me forget, Nashe. He's made me forget all my troubles, even my father's house. So for Joseph, his father's house in the land of Israel just brings back horrible memories. That's where he got beat up, thrown into a pit. He wants to forget it. So Jacob here is telling him, don't forget it. That's your place, the land of Israel. And the message gets through because Yosef is going to insist that when the Jews eventually leave Egypt, Many years later, he makes the Jews swear that they'll take his bones out of the Nile and bring it into the land of Israel. And that's what Moses does. But what I'm trying to say here is that even for our forefathers, they got used to it. The fact is that the only time the Jew ever left the exile is when it was rough for him, when he had no choice. When Rabbi Kahana tried to convince us to make Aliyah, he tried to scare us into Aliyah. He never told us to make Aliyah to the land of Israel because it's wonderful, because it's a mitzvah. What he did was explain how America can go under. He wrote a book, Time to Go Home, where in it he gives all the social and economic and political reasons how it can happen in America. And in his last lecture before he was murdered, his entire message was, Jews, you got to make an emergency aliyah before the Jewish people are swept away in a Holocaust in America. The rabbi always knew that the only thing that will get the Jew moving is if he feels the Jew hatred and he realizes it's not safe for him. If he has it good, he'll never leave. Today, if you travel through Israel, you hear a lot of French. I never heard so much French on the buses, in a lot of the settlements. You see a lot more French people than you ever saw before. And it's really a quality aliyah, these French. But why are the French here suddenly? Because of the growing Jew hatred in France. That's what brings him here. The Jew won't come to Israel because it's a wonderful place. He's going to come when he has no choice, when the anti-Semitism forces him out of the exile. And the sages teach us this in a tremendous parable. It says that when Noah was in the ark, he sent out the dove, right? And the dove, when does he come back to the ark? She'en manoach glove. When there's no resting place for his feet. But as long as there is a manoach, as long as there's a resting place, he won't return to the ark. Of course, the ark in this parable is the land of Israel. And as long as the Jew in the exile has a resting place, a little branch to rest on, a kosher pizza and falafel restaurant, he won't come back. When does he come back? When there's no resting place for his feet, just like the dove. Okay, so that's my aliyah pitch. Let's move on to the next story. You know, the newspaper in Israel called Haaretz, probably heard of it. This is one really disgusting newspaper. This is the intellectual New York Times kind of paper, considered the gold standard in journalism. Well, since the new government's been formed, 
they've been going out of their minds. And there's a editorial by somebody named Hadar Suskind. And the title is, Don't Normalize Israel's Extremist Government or Its American Apologists. Israel's new hardline coalition, its U.S. Jewish apologists, and its U.S. political allies are already trying to normalize a government of racists, settlers, felons, bigots, and occupiers. Don't fall for it. You hear what they call the government? It's a collection of racists, settlers, felons, bigots, and occupiers. This is an editorial in a Jewish newspaper. And what he's saying in the article is that the newly formed Israeli governing coalition and its U.S. allies, they're going to try to normalize this hardline right-wing government. And he's warning us, don't let them do it. He writes that normalization efforts are already on the way and they will intensify, but don't let them do it. Don't fall for their efforts. And I'll just quote him a little bit. Because there is nothing normal about appointing a radical settler who has been interrogated for suspected terrorist activity, who strives to annex the West Bank to Israel. And there is nothing normal about appointing a radical homophobe whose party kept blacklists of the LGBTQ media influencers, etc. So the Israeli news is full of these kind of articles where they try to delegitimize this government at every turn because it's a right-wing nationalist government. But more than that, it's a government that has in its coalition religious and traditional Jews. It has Jewish Jews in it. And they're in a position of power now. And the left is on the attack like a wild dog because if they're liberal, woke, progressive comrades aren't in power, then they have to delegitimize this government as extremists, homophobic, etc. Now, what we have to worry about is that this government just might bend over backwards to show the leftists and to show the world, no, no, we're not that bad. The concern is that they are going to do what the article says here. They're going to try to normalize themselves because that's what usually happens. The right-wing people get in and they get startled from all the attacks against them. And so they have to prove that, no, we're not that bad. And so they end up carrying out the agenda of the left under the guise of the national right-wing party. That's why it's the Likud party, which is the party that's cut up Israel into pieces more than any other party. It was Menachem Begin who went to Camp David and set the precedent for dismantling settlements. Yemit, Sinai, was taken down by a right-wing government, Begin and Sharon. It was Sharon who destroyed Gush Katif. I mean, I remember Sharon being the darling of the nationalist camp. He was the keynote speaker at all the rallies of the settlers. And yeah, he's the one who bulldozed Gush Katif into rubble. So that has to be our concern, that the new government will make all these attempts to normalize. Now, already, this Knesset, with its right-wing government, has elected Likud member Amir Ohana as its speaker. Ohana is the Knesset's first openly gay person to hold that role. He was voted in. 63 to 3. And so that's supposed to give us all nachas, that the Jewish state is progressive and doesn't discriminate. The Speaker of the House is an important strategic position. He wields influence over legislative agenda and pace. He's like Nancy Pelosi. And so Ohana got the job. He thanked Bibi profusely. He vowed that the coalition would not infringe on the LGBTG rights. That's the ikar. That's what's important. So this is what we have to worry about already. Netanyahu, the consummate politician, he is going to do all he can to dispel the notion that this administration isn't extreme, homophobic, whatever. Now, that's the Speaker of the House. You know who the Deputy Speaker of the House is? Well, he's been in that position since 2006. We're talking about Ahmed Tibi, who's basically an Arab terrorist. So you have Amir Ohana, an openly gay person, and Ahmed Tibi as the Deputy Speaker. 
So it's becoming like America where you become the vice president on the basis of your genitalia or your race. Kamala Harris is a woman and she's of color. So she's got the job. If she was also a lesbian, then she'd be overqualified. That's how they make appointments over there. And that's what they're starting to do here. They appoint according to gender, race, and sexual orientation. And so now our Israeli Knesset, they're following in that path. We got a gay guy as our speaker to show that we're not anti-LGBT elemental P. And we also take a Jew-hating Arab to prove that we're not racist. So we have to hope that this new government doesn't go around trying to placate the left. It's the people who voted them in. It's the Israeli public who doesn't want all this schmutz. They have to do what they were elected to do and not try to bend over backwards to please the newspaper Haaretz or the New York Times. So we're calling out to this new right-wing government, please don't try to normalize yourselves too much because what they call normal isn't normal. I want to go on to something totally different. And this is something that has to do with health. This we'll call Pinata Briut. This is the health corner now of the podcast. And there was an article in Forbes magazine. It said like this, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, they say there is a diabetes crisis in children and it's spreading that the percentage of Americans under the age of 20 with type 2 diabetes is skyrocketing according to an official study. So they give all these statistics how when these kids get older, there's going to be like a seven-fold increase in diabetes. And you can understand the reasons why. First of all, we're feeding our kids junk. When I visit America, I see the refrigerators. Everybody's got a two-liter Dr. Pepper in the fridge, pints and pints of ice cream. But what's worse is that kids aren't playing sports anymore. They don't go outside. They're either with their PlayStation or their faces in front of some screen or another. I mean, that's something universal. I see it in Israel too. Nobody goes out to play. You don't see kids riding their bicycles. You know, when I was a youth, we rode our bikes. We went out to play sports every single day. It doesn't matter how hot it was outside. It doesn't matter if it was boiling hot. We play stickball, basketball. We went to the park. We were active. Today, the young kids sit around in front of their phone. We didn't have that option. We had a couple channels on TV, Channel 5, Channel 11. Once in a while, there was a show we would watch. So we were outside playing. When I heard a basketball dribbling outside, I would jump up and see who's that dribbling the ball. Maybe we'll play some ball. Now, of course, it's known that a healthy body means a healthy soul. If you're not healthy bodily, it's hard to be a spiritual person. When your body feels right, you pray better. It's like if your body feels right, feels good, and it's quiet, and you have no issues with it, then you can concentrate on your soul. If you don't have to pay attention to your body, you can focus on your soul. It's like your body is quiet, so now your soul can shine. And so it's important spiritually for a person to keep healthy, to keep his body healthy, to eat the right foods. For that alone, I thank God I made Aliyah to Israel. You know, in the States, who eats healthy foods? When I was in Queens, New York, I don't think I ever saw a fruit stand. Maybe there was, but I never ate a fruit. I never saw a mango before. In Israel, there's fruits and vegetables everywhere. It's, I think it's a lot easier to be healthy here. There's a lot more awareness of health. I go to America, it looks like the potato people. There's so many fat people. Everybody looks like a heart attack waiting to happen. There just doesn't seem to be awareness of good health. So if we Jews want to remain spiritual beings, we have to make sure our body doesn't give us any problems. You can't concentrate on your soul if your body is nagging you, if you have all kinds of pains. It's like if you're driving in your car and the people are in your car and you're driving through beautiful scenery and everybody's enjoying the scenery, but you know your car can break down at any moment. It's a lousy car. 
You're not enjoying the scenery like everybody else because you keep thinking about your car. You don't want to have to think about your body. You want to concentrate on the scenery. So again, that alone is a reason to make Aliyah. Tremendous fruits and vegetables. The mangoes are unbelievable. I had a mango in the States. It looked like a mango. Didn't taste like one though. Now moving on to another subject entirely. There was an article both in Haaretz and the Jerusalem Post. And the headline was that the IDF Haredi unit forces two female soldiers and a Druze out of their base. That's a pretty provocative headline right there. That the IDF Haredi unit forces two female soldiers and a Druze out of the base. Let me read this thing. The Netzach Yehuda Battalion, that's the Haredi unit they're talking about, has been transferred to the Syrian border from the West Bank. Why did they transfer them from the West Bank? Because the controversial battalion's problematic history of beating Palestinians in the West Bank. And its presence in the West Bank has caused friction. So they're moving them to the Syrian border. So it's saying that this Netzach Yehuda battalion, this Haredi unit, they're rough with the Arabs. And they're controversial because of that. They got a bad reputation. You got to move them out of the West Bank where there are a lot of Arabs and bring them to the Syrian border. Okay, so how did they force two female soldiers and a Druze out of the base? Here it comes. Because of the transfer, it will force out two female soldiers and one Druze soldier who had been serving in the Syrian border. So they're going to an existing base that already had these two female soldiers and a Druze cook. So why is the Druze leaving? IDF sources say that the Druze soldier was being transferred only because he works in the kitchen. And the Netzach Yehuda Battalion has their own specialized kitchen personnel for their specific food standards. In other words, they want kosher food and they can't have a Druze cooking for them. That's against halacha, against Jewish law. So he can't stay there. And what about the two girls? They were transferred so the Haredi soldiers can maintain their religious lifestyle. And the article goes on and on, trashing this Netzach Yehuda battalion for being primitive, for not letting girls in. You know, so I don't know where to even start. You know, the favorite pastime of the left and most of the secular Jews in Israel, they love to bash the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Haredim, for not doing the army. So here you have this battalion, Netzach Yehuda, they do serve in the IDF, but they got to trash them anyway. And what's bad about them? They've been beating up the poor Arabs and they want to keep their kitchen kosher. And like we said, you can't do that with a Druze cook. Can you believe that this is a story in the newspaper? Like who's following this? How do they dig this stuff up? And about the Jewish girls who had to leave the base. Oh, that's terrible that these religious soldiers, they have moral standards. The Torah says, keep your machane kadosh. You should have a holy camp because an army base is often a place of lewdness and lack of morality, any army base. So these religious soldiers, they want to keep things modest. We know that in the secular bases, the women soldiers are usually mattresses for the officers. That doesn't happen in the Netzach Yehuda Battalion. So Haaretz and the Jerusalem Post has to get in their case. Now I bring this article because it reflects what's really going on in Israel. And that's the cultural war. There's a cultural war going on here. But more on that next time. That's it for me today. Make sure you tune into my Bible podcast. You can find it at Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Anchor. You can find it on Spotify and other platforms. Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes for an authentic study of the Bible. Learn about the biblical figures. Let them inspire you. Let the Bible be a blueprint for life. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. 
We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dots from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 